Hello everyone, welcome to True Cult Pop, it's a pop music podcast. It's me, Stephen Hill, I hope you are good. Look at this little extra bonus freebie podcast advertorial, I guess you might even call it, it's better than that, um, <laughs> that we're putting out for you. Uh, I'm here with Sam Slight, he's always with me, wherever I go, like uh, you're like the, the bad Greg. rash. Yeah, the Greg to my Tom, if we were succession. Oh, nice. Have you seen that? Nope. Uh, I'd say I'm the Jamie to your Bill, maybe. Keep it in theme with this. Yeah, that could be right. Maybe. Maybe not. You're looking comfortable with that. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, I could be the the large sum of money to your uh, (laughs) intentions. (laughs) Yeah, we're... We're definitely not as fucking mental as what we're about to no, talk about. No, no, no. Um, so listen, what's the story with that? That's what this podcast is. Essentially, <laughs> we have decided, Sam and I, to change the way that we are running things over on our Patreon page. This isn't being put out on our Patreon page. This is a little kind of teaser to maybe hopefully send you over there mm. so that you'll just give us some money or you'll listen to our best content because that's where we get all of our best content um patreon.com forward slash true cop pop is where you can go over and sign up for all the exclusive content that we put out on that page or where this will be a regular thing and this actually the event that we're going to be talking about it's kind of inspired um what happened usually what we've been doing on our patreon page is you pay a pound and you get to suggest an album any album you like and we will go through that massive selection of albums that we have and we will do a podcast on said album for you that's what we will do that's been working pretty well for a while um but if you listening or kind of a listener from a, a while back you'll know that you know we've been talking about the the workload has been um such that we've decided that you know we're going to kind of we've been changing things and trying to make we've been try, working smarter not necessarily, mm. rather than working harder, I think. Is that how they say it? I think that's what the kids say, yeah, something like that's that. What the, oh, yeah. Some shit like that, yeah. Anyway, so basically, um, we have decided to kind of half that thing that we've been doing on the Your Cult Pops. And if you give us a quid, rather than four Your Cult Pops, which is what you usually get, one a week, that's 25p a podcast. It's not so bad, right? That's pretty good value, I think. Cheap I think chips ripping anyone off on that and i think even 50p a podcast doesn't really feel like it's a complete ripoff so what we're going to do is for the one pound that you give us if you give us a pound you'll get two your cult pop suggestions we have now introduced a three pound tier so if you want to spend three pound you'll get the two your cult pops you'll get two of these podcasts that I'm about to tell you what they are in a minute. And of course, then we have a £5 tier that has got classic albums and beginner's guide too. And that is the proper like real deep divey stuff that we mm. have on there. Every other week you get a big deep dive thing. But every other week from now on in this £3 tier, we are going to be giving you a Your Cult Pop Presents What's the Story ellipsis something. Yeah. Because there are so many massive, amazing hilarious Mm. sometimes tragic sometimes bizarre happenings that have happened throughout the world of music that 
we just maybe would we maybe in the format that we're doing at the moment we just maybe might not ever get around to talking about and i think that's a shame i think it's a shame that we don't get to kind of deep dive some of the odder and um more bizarre happenings that have happened throughout the music world purely because the people involved in it maybe haven't released an album that we love mm. and i kind of wanted to change that a little bit to be honest that's what i wanted to do sam that's yeah. fair enough isn't it i think that's totally fair enough i am just half wondering because obviously we're going to call it what's the story uh i wonder if maybe this bit of live editorial maybe we should rebrand it already and call it what were that what were all that about <laughs> <laughs> the klf what were all that about <laughs> <laughs> that is quite a good idea actually that is... <laughs> but then that's got nothing to do with music no, it's just, what's just something watching peter kane that's all what's the story i think is better but yeah <laughs> yeah i would like to do that so you know look basically there are certain things like i can say that happened in the music industry where we probably wouldn't be able to do um sort of deep dives on odd little things mm. so you know that's what this is going to be every other week we're going to be taking a story a moment from the world of music and looking at it yeah. and trying to work out what happened why it happened where it happened maybe telling you about stuff that you probably you know either hadn't thought about for years or hadn't really ever even known about because i mean for example yeah, we did it. We did a we did a classic album on Pulp, and I said to Sam, you know, with different class, and I said, oh, you know, Michael Jackson at the Brits, right? And you didn't even know that that happened until we did the the thing. I had which... no idea. And when we were talking on the phone prior to recording, you said, "I tell you what, mate, don't look at any of it. I will tell mm. you more when we record." And it was like, "Oh, okay." And I think that yeah. worked quite well. Yeah, so that's what we've basically decided to do. That little tiny segment, do that for all kinds of things. Now, it might be Daphne and Celeste getting bottled off stage at Reading. Mm -hmm. It might be Jerry Halliwell leaving the Spice Girls. It might be John Prescott getting a bucket of water chucked over him by Chumbawamba. Uh, you know, it might be Richie Edwards' disappearance. Mm. It might be looking at the, you know, the, the murder of... Dimebag Daryl. It might be really, really serious, tragic stuff. It might be absolutely ridiculous stuff. Mm. But it will be things we think that are just interesting and odd and um, unique and memorable and things that deserve to have, I guess, their own kind of full-blown podcast dedicated to them. And it kind of came about because I had been reading a book and I, I have actually read the book now. Um, uh, I read the book, The KLF, Chaos, Magic and the Band Who Burnt a Million Pounds by John Higgs. I cannot recommend this book more. It is really, really, really brilliant. Really brilliant. I am um, holding my copy that Steve recommended I get and I would like to echo that recommendation. It is fucking brilliantly written. I think John Higgs has done an absolutely stellar job of it. Yeah. So we wanted to do something about the KLF because I read this book and I was like, a bit like I kept saying for ages back when we were doing right act, like I want to do something about rave culture. I want to do something about rave culture. I'm really, really interested in rave culture. But then, you know, uh, apart from music for the digital generation, which I kind of, I tagged a lot of stuff about rave culture in on that. I was like, when am I ever going to get a chance to talk about this thing? Where's and I was like, when am, yeah. yeah, when am I ever going to get a chance to talk about the KLF on a podcast? Um, because 
like spoiler i mean i i the klf got some great singles really fucking great singles and i remember them from back in the day they're not a band who i would probably ever have considered doing an album about and really a classic album about and really like the interesting stuff about the klf as good as their music is it's not really the klf mm. but it is the stuff that the klf facilitated through their music um and so this is going to be a two-part the first part you're getting here for free the second part will be over on our patreon page like i say patreon.com forward slash true cop pop sign up for the three pound tier and you'll get to hear the second part of it so in the first part we are going to be talking about the events of the 12th of february 1992 when the klf and extreme noise terror played 3am eternal and then exited the music industry mm. and in the second half uh, which you'll be able to hear over on our patreon page as i said we will be talking about the aftermath of the klf deciding to uh, exit the music industry and burn a million pounds in cash that's what we're going to be talking about yeah i mean bizarre bizarre i think this uh, this adventure is going to be but i'm i'm fascinated to uh, learn more about it to be honest because i think um as well I, I completely agree with your statement there where the KLF, I think the most interesting things about them is everything other than the music. Like I've listened to a little bit of KLF and maybe it's just that, that genre is kind of outside my wheelhouse. I know they pioneered quite a few, the sort of, you know, stadium house and stuff like that and doing like ambient mm. uh, electronica. Um, I like the bits I've heard. <laughs> I like, well, kind of ironically, I suppose, like Doctor in the TARDIS, I think more because of what it represents <laughs> than <laughs> what, what the song actually is. Um, but yeah, it's it's everything that goes into the background of it and the K Foundation and uh, everything but the recorded output, I think, is fascinating. Yeah, uh, like really, really mm. fascinating. So um, some of you might be going, what are you on about? What is this? What happened? What are you talking about? Um so let's give you a little bit of backstory about the KLF before we get into it. The KLF are Bill Drummond and Jimmy Corti. Uh, that is the KLF. Uh, Bill Drummond uh, is a man who had been involved in the music industry for kind of over a decade prior to the KLF's big kind of massive mainstream breakthrough moments. Uh, he formed the label zoo records mm. um back in the 80s uh, uh he had um echo and the Bunnymen, and the teardrop explodes were kind of the main two artists that he had on zoo records um uh, he was uh, a guy who didn't really think about the music industry in I guess the way in which a lot of people think about the music industry, I'm, I think he had a kind of quite an idealized version of what he wanted the music industry to be. Mm. Um, they weren't going to release albums. He was a, kind of ahead of his time in the, in, in the fact that he sort of, you know, now people go, Oh, is the, is, is the art of the album dead? I mean, back in 1980, <laughs> um, Bill Drummond was going, no, just singles no albums we won't release albums we're only going to release singles and when you've got two bands like the teardrop explodes and echo and the bunny men and you have them signed to your label but yet you you won't let them release albums obviously they're going to get signed to major labels which mm -hmm. is ex ex exactly what happened um bill drummond uh an interesting character i mean to say the fucking least an interesting character yeah i mean reading uh this john higgs book i mean the kind of profile of him um 
it's funny we've uh, recently on the Patreon page talked about Killing Joke and um, Jazz Coleman being quite a hard character to sort of pin down. Like, is he you know is he serious? Is he mad? Who knows? I mean, Bill Drummond. It's like it feels like if you bumped into him in any sort of I don't know hospitality setting. He could be the loveliest man you've ever met or he could throw his pint at you and you don't know if he's going to absolutely brutalise you. He seems like a character who does things uh, based on instinct, um, kind of out of the blue. Yeah, A loose cannon, I suppose you would say. A loose cannon who, um, you know, not to get too much into the the, the, the book and, and, and whatnot, but he would do stuff like if he'd go fishing, he would walk in a direction to the place from his house to where he was going to fish um the the route that he would take if you looked at it on it from above on a map mm. it would be the shape of a fish that he'd make sure that it was like shaped like that mm. um he had a thing where he sort of saw echo and the bunny men and the teardrop explodes as like sort of fire and ice basically to uh, and one of them he wanted them to both do a gig at the same time where one played was it in in finland or iceland somewhere really really cold and the other one we're going to play in, and so echo no bunny men played where it was really cold and then um the teardrop explodes we're going to play in i think it was burkino faso or somewhere in mm. in africa and they were both going to be playing at exactly the same time and he was going to stand on uh, like a manhole in Liverpool, and apparently that would open up some sort of extra portal to the world. An unconventional We're, character, I think it's fair to say. An an uncon um, an unconventional character, undoubtedly. Um, and uh, yeah, and you can't really imagine that he would be an A and R man for Warner Brothers Records. Right? <laughs> no, <laughs> but he, he was. wouldn't. Yeah. yeah, but he was for a bit, um, and. At the age of 33, I mean, we should say that as well. Like, he was a bit older than mm. most people getting into music at that time. At 33, and this is way before he becomes, you know, a legit pop star. At 33, he decides on New Year's Day um, to quit his job uh, as an A&R man for, um, for Warner and basically sort of leave the music industry, retire mm. from the music industry. And that is what he did initially. Um so let's leave him there for a minute and let's bring in Jimmy Corti. So Jimmy Corti uh, was actually speaking of Killing Joke. Jimmy Corti was uh, kind of a, one of those people that you, that you hear about in kind of the, the 80s and, um, you know, the 70s and the 80s and the, the kind of bohemian um, artist. Just a man going around doing artsy things. Yeah. You, you used to be able to do that back in those days, Sam. You used to oh. just be kind of bohemian exist. You didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to have rich parents or become <laughs> sort of, sort of a trust fund kids and buy a bass guitar so you could yeah. be in a band. You could just sort of live off um, weird little artistic projects that you did for about £30 a week or something. That's kind of what Jimmy Courtney was doing in the late 70s and early 80s pretty much, wasn't it? Ah, oh, the good old days. Before zero hours contracts. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, Jimmy Courtney was in a band... Um, with youth mm. from from uh, from Killing Joke, we just mentioned Killing Joke, and uh, Jimmy Courtney was in a band called Brilliant, which is such a bad name for a band. Just makes me think of the enthusiastic lie from the the Fast Show. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, who didn't do that much? Didn't do that much. Uh, they did an album with uh, with Pete Waterman of Stock Aitken and Waterman fame, mm. and later Pop Idol. 
Um, we all know it. Never, yeah. never forget Pete Waterman's beautiful stint on the show Pop Idol. That was good, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Was it? <laughs> I mean, I remember <laughs> no. it, but I don't remember it. No, no, <laughs> don't no. Don't remember it being no. good. No, 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 no. Hey, we got not. Gareth Gates and Will Young out of it. Yeah. Uh, so basically, you know, these two guys are sort of bumming around. So uh, Brilliant, I think, broke up and Jimmy Courtney probably thought he wasn't going to be doing anything much in uh, in music after that. And uh, Bill Drummond had sort of quit the music industry and he went around, just went sort of travelling for a little while. And um, then got into hip-hop and decided he wanted to make a hip-hop collective and so got hold of jimmy courty and they formed the justified ancients of moo moo mm. now i don't know and i didn't know until i read this book what this name was referring to but it's something to do with the illuminati isn't it it is yes which i think once you look at the klf's kind of career as an overview it makes a hell of a lot of sense looking at the kind of themes that run through all of it but yeah i i had no idea i thought it was just a kind of gibberish name i thought being the kind of uh i suppose these days you'd call them disruptors of the music industry that they were that it was a deliberately tongue-in-cheek over-the-top daft name to go with kind of maybe spiritualized kind of spiritually inflected electronic music i thought they were taking the piss basically mm. yeah i mean the thing about everything that we're going to be talking about with the klf is that it's really hard to know what's serious mm. and what's like a joke Do you know yeah. what i mean like it is really really difficult to work out when they're being serious and when they're just sort of winding people up mm. but i think if you do go deeper into it and again i would re- recommend reading this book and we don't have that much time to go into because it's fucking mental but it's basically bizarre, the, yeah yeah the the illuminatus trilogy um from 1975 by uh, robert shea and robert anton wilson is a kind of satirical um postmodern science fiction adventure which is influenced by i guess like Weird, cons- weird post JFK conspiracy theories. Mm. Yeah, it, it seems to be basically it's the it's the it's the new world order kind of like secret state kind of thing that informs all of that writing that KLF do seem to take from. And it, well, like you say, it's hard to tell how much of that is sincere. In the same way that I still struggle with Jazz Coleman, it's like, oh, does he mean it? The, the parallels yeah. are everywhere. Yeah, I mean they are quite similar. So anyway, the, the Just for Ancient Moo Moo uh, released their debut single, "All You Need Is Love," which samples heavily from all you need is love by the the beatles and touch me by samantha fox you ever heard that before <laughs> that? i've not heard their song i've heard both of the constituent parts yeah. that go together yeah yeah so basically in true kind of <laughs> um where we're going to be going with this just as angels and mumu were just there basically to take other people's music mm. and kind of splush it together without asking for permission for it release it on a white label and just get fucking pissed piss people off and get sued so um that was you know there was so there's a lot of fear of kind of lawsuits and prosecution from um from the, the kind of apple not steve jobs but the beatles mm. like you, you don't want to fucking just take a beatles song like that's <laughs> that's like that's ballsy right that's fucking ballsy just be like first single we're having a, we're having all you need is love by the beatles and we're just gonna whack sam fox over the top of it it's defiling a sacred cow of the music industry 
yeah uh it really is and it's not like they sort of stopped after that so the second single um that they did um was uh the queen and i which was basically dancing queen by abba mm. so just took dancing queen by abba um put it on their album the album is called 1987 what the fuck is going on and um didn't ask for permission to use dancing queen just used it put it on their album and obviously abba's record label and management were like what are you doing you can't have this (laughs) obviously you can't have this and uh and and the two uh justified engines of moo moo chaps decided to go to sweden and take all of the records that had been pressed um to kind of basically try and find the members of abba and I guess try and reason with them. I suppose so. I mean, again, it's it's so hard to really kind of get a handle on their motivations, and again, the sincerity behind it. I mean, did they want to do that, or is it just another in a long string of publicity stunts as a kind of yes. media manipulators? Who who can say? Yeah, and uh, in a kind of precursor to what we'll talk about a little bit later, when they couldn't get hold of ABBA and they were kind of all of the albums were forcibly withdrawn, they took. Um, you know, they took what was left uh, and just threw it in the sea mm. on the way back. Just chucked all of their records that they had made with this album, with this song on, just got chucked straight in the sea. Um, they kind of carried on for about another year. Um, again, you know, taking the Mission Impossible music, the Shaft theme tune, um, Downtown by Petula Clark. I Want to Dance with Somebody by Whitney Houston. Just basically half inching all of these songs mm-hmm. and putting them out to more and more annoyance for the, <laughs> the kind of the music industry at large. Um, until they basically uh, were kind of threatened to don't, you, you cannot do this anymore. You cannot do this anymore. And uh, so they decided to disband the Justified Agent of Moo Moo and try and write a novelty pop song, which you sang to me just before we started recording, Sam. Doctor in the TARDIS by the Time Lords from 1988, a number one hit. Yeah. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, As uh, people may have been able to ascertain from the melody there, another song made up of other people's songs. Yeah, it's basically the Doctor Who theme music and Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter. Oh, it's not aged well, has it? That's not <laughs> aged well. Now, the thing about their kind of reinvention as the Time Lords, um, they wanted to, again, totally trolling the music industry. Mm. It was said that Doctor Natardis was, um, was actually written by a car. Yes, <laughs> the Ford TARDIS, isn't it? Yeah. it? yeah. So yeah, they had the Ford. Tar- so they had this car, and um, they kind of put on the front cover of Doctor and the TARDIS, like "Hello, I am," with the speech bubble coming mm. out of this car, going, "I've written a pop song," <laughs> like novelty as fuck. Yes. Right? I, and, yeah, and I remember this. I mean, obviously, you're too young to remember. I remember this song getting to number one, and they. When they, they got asked to come and do it on top of the pops, they just wanted to put the car, the car on stage and just have a car. Just having a car with the flashing lights on a car <laughs> on stage while, while the song played. And uh, Top of the Pops went, No, you can't do that. That's not, no, you can't Spoiled do that. Sports. Uh, I reckon, what do you reckon about this, Sam? I think that the people at the Top of the Pops 
would probably rather that they had have let them done that than what ended up actually happening. Yeah, I think they probably... Yeah, I think knowing In what they know now, yes, they, they probably would have taken an inanimate car with a few lights on it. Yeah, because basically, um, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Courtney dress up as time lords, I guess, or Doctor Who, and, and stand either side of actual Gary Glitter. Mm. Actual Gary Glitter comes and does the song with them. And obviously, they didn't know. The BBC didn't know. But now... Can't no, no. Yeah. Again. Can't ever play that song again, can you? That is, that is a stinker. Unless it's um, in uh, the Joker film, of course. Or uh, Rishi Sunak's recent um, re-election pledges. Pretty sure they used the drum beat from uh, Rock and Roll Part 2 in there. They've denied it. But it is the drum Did beat. they? It is definitely oh, the same drum beat. Yeah. I didn't know that. Mm. Fucking hell, I, I did not know that at all. Oops. Um, yeah, that's bad, that. I mean, you know, look, it got to number one in the UK, that song. Mm. Number one. Got to number one in New Zealand as well. Got to number two in Australia. Um, went top ten in Belgium, in Finland, in Ireland, uh, in Norway. And it ended up being the 52nd best-selling single of 1988 <laughs> here in the United Kingdom. Dear me, there really wasn't much going on here, was there? No, it was uh, <laughs> not the best. Not the not the best year. So, um, in the aftermath of having a number one hit as the Time Lords, uh, they wrote a book, the two of them, in 1989, and um, and released it called the Manual. Uh, the Manual, open brackets, how to have a number one the easy way. Close brackets. Mm. Um, this is their first sort of, I guess. Uh, thing that is not actually um music i mean it's about music but it's not actually releasing music because you know it's important to kind of say as we get into it that the klf aren't strictly a band mm, they're kind of a, an art collective i guess a kind of art yeah. foundation well i mean there is the k foundation but yeah this is their first publication of of many to come down the line mm. and so basically um this is a book that was just saying, if you follow the rules of this book, you will have a number one album. Mm. Like you will definitely have a number, one, a number one album. And it's quite interesting that um, quite a few people have said that they have bought the book and have gone on to do that. I think one of the Claxons said yes. they bought the book and they followed it to the letter of the law. That's fucking... <laughs> well, I don't know what's happened to the Claxons, but they were fucking big for a bit. They actually were big. They were. I remember them being... Yeah, I remember them being about when I was in secondary school. I didn't like them, but uh, I mean, to be fair, thinking about the content of the manual kind of as it's uh, as it's preceded, they fit the bill for it uh, pretty much... Well, pretty spot on, really, because I think the main one that I came across that was... Was it the first number one uh, certainly single to, to take from the manual? Uh, Bring me Edelweiss. Yes, that's right. So Bring Me Edelweiss um, was <laughs> basically took SOS by ABBA. Poor mm. fucking ABBA. Yeah. They're getting absolutely <laughs> They're getting rinsed. rinsed. Yeah. They're getting fucking rinsed. But yeah, they took uh, SOS uh, by ABBA and sold 5 million copies of the song Bring Me Edelweiss across the, the world. Ridiculous. All from reading this book that said you, and, and following, it, following it to the letter of the law. Um uh, Justin Reynolds of the Claxons said that he took direct instructions from it. Get yourself a studio, get a groove going, sing some absolute nonsense over the top, put a breakbeat behind it and you're away. That's what I did. That's genuinely it. I read that, noted down the golden rules of pop and applied it to what we were doing and made sure that it always applies to everything we do. The way we always come out with the sort of catchy hit number. Mm. So yeah, there you go. Um, it was 
um, in March 1988 that the KLF renamed themselves the KLF from being the Justified Ancients of Moomoo. And um, I think it's around this time. This is the sort of the period where the KLF actually start or, or, or Drummond and Colty, let's call them, rather than just Kayla. I think this is where they start actually taking music a little bit more seriously mm. and actually releasing music, which is, you know, dare I say it, actually quite good. Mm. I mean, I, I've not delved deep enough into uh, the music they were making. Like I say, I've always found myself more drawn to the kind of the story of them. But what I have heard, I know, is a lot more respectable and well as i said at the start pioneering rather than these kind of yeah novelty troll songs basically no they were actually trying to make a point at this point yeah so um the klf released um they released basically uh like i think the the first album that they released under the klf banner was chill out which is mm. a kind of ambient music collective uh collection of songs which was um you know, I, I don't even know if I've ever listened to that album before. I'm pretty sure that I haven't. Uh, they followed it up pretty quickly after that with the album Space. Um, again, you know, that's uh, more of a kind of ambient collection of um, Brian Eno inspired, rather than it being kind of proper kind of dancey house music. Mm. It, it is more sort of ambient music and it's not, you know, I don't think that's necessarily what people would think about when they, they think of the KLF's music. But um, it was in 1991 with the release of the album The White Room, which is actually a soundtrack album. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, soundtrack nice. to a film that the KLF did called The White Room. Now, in the sort of late, in the mid-80s into the 90s, bands, obviously we've spoken before a little bit about bands doing their own films. mm and the KLF decided that um, they were going to make a film called The White Room. And um, it basically ended up being a really long, quite unwatchable, <laughs> almost sort of silent movie. So it's basically the two of them um, trying to find The White Room. Mm. And they go into somewhere and they sign a contract and then they get in a car and they drive from this kind of inner city up to the middle of nowhere, kind of icy place, and they go into the white room. And that's it. And there's no dialogue. It is about an hour and a half of just Jimmy Courtney and Bill Drummond in a car driving and occasionally stopping and getting out and looking around. And so it's this sort of, it's this very kind of art house thing. Um, I'm saying this without ha having actually ever seen the movie of the white room because it never got a kind of commercial release back in the day but what it did have was even though it never came out they did a they did a, a soundtrack album for it which is their fourth and final studio album and it features the singles what time is love last train to transcendental and 3am eternal and those mm. are the three songs essentially i think that most people would probably know the klf for so around kind of 1990 1991 we're seeing like rave culture becoming a much bigger thing dance music's becoming much more you know you get the kind of the second summer of love in 1989 and i've spoken if you want to go back and listen to the prodigy special that i did you know i talk a lot about how um 
free parties and the early days of acid house here in the uk started to creep slowly and then almost like a kind of tsunami that kind of damn burst and so much of that stuff started getting into the charts i mean again you're probably a little bit too young to remember that happening sam but yeah unfortunately it, so. it it felt really it did feel really really exciting even as a kid even as a kind of 11 12 year old seeing that stuff on it's hard to think now because you know electronic music and dance music is such a part of the mainstream a bit mm. like you know when we said about hip-hop around this time as well and it wasn't really properly part of the mainstream it really really was quite a kind of like whoa fuck what is this this isn't you know the traditional sound of pop music that i'm so used to hearing on top of the pops or whatever these kind of guys stood behind decks mm. and laptops and stuff like or, or, or we're not even laptops then it would have been full-blown kind of personal <laughs> computers yeah, yeah. like it was it was a really kind of unnervingly unerringly like weird odd thing to see happen mm. around that time i think it's quite hard to really appreciate just how sort of revolutionary that felt at that time do you know what i mean um i do i mean i can't think that i mean obviously if i could think of it i'd be doing it but i can't think of a way in which there can ever be a kind of like revolutionary music genre and kind of presentation again because everything is available to you in an instant like these ideas kind of are shared and sort of uh gestate and germinate so quickly that i can't kind of get my head around the idea of being shocked by some sort of musical performance in that respect like the actions that they well however they may perform sure but the actual presentation and sound of the music i don't think it will ever scare people or, or take people aback in the way that it used to mm. yeah it was it was really like oh what the you know what what even is this like what mm. the fuck is it i didn't really even understand how you know you weren't a singer they didn't have a singer you weren't a band like it's just one person they're not doing it like it was, it's just talking it was over really music. different yeah absolutely mm. and um you know uh when we get to the kind of the 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 real kind of boom period for that the klf are particularly in the uk and i mean i don't know how much i'd say it kind of it spread worldwide but the klf are the pretty much the most popular band they are pretty much like the the main band that kind of helped break that mm. into the mainstream in 1991 they were the biggest selling singles band in britain ridiculous so, yeah 3m eternal uh went to number one last train to transcendental went to number two uh, america what time is love uh went to number four um and i mean that even got to you know um i should say like that that top the the u.s dance charts as well um and then it's grim up north was top 10 and then justified and ancient went to number two in the uk so that is five uk top 10 hits four uk top five hits three between one and two and a number one single as well um pretty much all of which went gold here in the uk justified and ancient incidentally also features tammy winnett the uh the country singer oh okay wow yeah who who uh who bill drummond really really loved mm. and um felt like he wanted to have like this is the thing again about bill drummond where you go i don't know what's real and i don't know what's not and i don't know where we stand with this and i don't know how we get to here 
Bill Drummond wasn't sarcastically using ABBA and no. Kylie Minogue and Whitney Houston. Like, he fucking loved all that shit. He actually fucking loved all that shit. So you've got this weird kind of disconnect, I guess, or this weird kind of like, how, how do you kind of square those two things? I hate the music industry and I want to destroy it but I love Whitney Houston. It's <laughs> it's really weird. Well, I suppose actually to me, that kind of makes sense why he'd have such an idealized view of uh, like doing something like Zoo Records is that he loves music so completely and so intrinsically that he wants it to be kind of the most free and honest expression that it can be. Like I think it, it chimes really well with someone who is an absolute music obsessive of the highest order, that he just wants it to exist kind of on its own and not be uh, steered by you know kind of economic trends i guess mm. yeah and and you know like i think they've always been pretty uh pretty open about saying that all of this was an accident but it's also something that they wanted to happen mm. you know they wouldn't have used people like tammy Wynette and sampled all of the things that they sampled were it not for the fact that they actually wanted to make songs that appealed to people i mean i think yeah. there's a there's a passage in the book that we're talking about um where uh, and and I fucking uh, to be honest, like, these days I I fully fucking agree with this. Um, I think they realised that uh, making ambient weird music that alienated people and people didn't understand it's all well and good. And you know, like oh, is it you know is th- this is proper artistic expression mm-hmm. and blah blah blah. Th- I think there's one of the quotes. I think it is from Bill Drummond who says that if it's not if the art you're making doesn't connect with people, then whether or not you think it's high art or not, it's it's worthless. It's completely worthless. Yeah. So their attitude was to go in and be like um, something that, you know, uh, all you post-rock fans <laughs> <laughs> stroking your chin. Oh, we're so much better than... You know, I, I, I agree with him. I actually do agree with him. I think, you know, if you're just trying to make music for a very small, you know... Um, it's a self-serving audience who already know that they're going to like your stuff. I and you're not trying to appeal to lots and lots of people. I don't think I don't I don't think that's I don't think that's a very worthy pursuit to be honest. I don't think that is very artistically interesting. No, I mean I think it's all well and good. Obviously you can have your own intentions, but yeah, I mean hmm. I I don't understand I mean, at this point in my life, I mean, certainly when I was younger, I'd be like, yeah, obviously make, you know, kind of horrible music that's really inaccessible. And I like, I do like to listen to that, you know, quite often. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, surely the point of art is for your own expression. And you would hope that it is that something for people to connect to. I mean, I completely agree that, well, if I were to be making music now, I would want it to be thing something that people enjoy. I wouldn't want it mm. to just put them off and perturb them. And you can even look at a band like Swans, you know, from the no wave scene where they were making this really, really harsh music that was meant to um, scare people away. That's why they locked people into their gigs so they couldn't get away. It was a kind of almost a torture exercise. But now they write music that, yeah, it's still weird, but it's easier to listen to because I think they actually want people to like them. Yeah, like what what's wrong, wrong with, that? with that? Yeah, exactly. Nothing wrong with that. Um, in 1991, like I say, they uh, they were massive, the KLF. Mm. fucking massive those songs i think like last train to transcendental i think is fucking great um 3am eternal again i think is like a a proper banger Mm -hmm. but um it's what time is love is just such a fucking tune like just by an ancient with tammy winnett i actually not as bothered by that to be honest but um but i really like those other songs i think are really good um have you have you listened to much of the the klf stuff 
I have listened to those singles actually. So Three AM Eternal yeah. was the first one I heard through the Brit Awards that we'll be talking about in a little bit. Um, yeah, I've listened to bits and bobs from the White Room because they're quite a weird band to try and listen to, given that uh, well, further down the line they erase themselves from history essentially they got rid of all their music and it becomes really difficult to get to but then it's all reissued digitally further down the line in different kinds of compilations so i can't tell you which albums if any i've listened to kind of uh, bits and bobs from because it's quite hard to really get my head around but yeah i've listened to those singles that you've listed there i think what time is love is brilliant i think the 3am eternal is excellent but then maybe i'm associating it more with the extreme noise terror version that they kind of mashed up which i fucking love yeah it is good that so um those singles were massive they sold six million records worldwide in 1991 it's mental and actually um you talked about how big they were i mean i didn't realize they were kind of the biggest like british singles band going until i was doing some research into the background of this um i guess it's a little bit like arrested development they're kind of a band where their musical contributions have almost i don't know fallen out of the public consciousness despite being as massive as they were Mm. except in this instance as we will talk about in part two mm. <laughs> they did that themselves they did do that themselves yes absolutely mm. but yeah it's kind of weird to think that a band could be that big and in, you know in recent history and i didn't really know about them until fairly recently and even then it's only through the stunts rather than as as a band yeah yeah i mean you know like they're decent enough the klf and the, i think I, I have listened to the probably have listened to the white room since it's been on streaming services i don't know if i got all the way through it but it's good like mm. they are good but of course you know I, I do definitely remember them being much more exciting on top of the pops when i was a kid than maybe they sound now and it just that music does sound a little bit dated sometimes and that's sure. just the, the way that it is but um with success like that it was obvious that they were going to be you know considered something of a mainstream darling mm. despite what music they were making and thusly they were nominated for a bunch of brits in yeah. 1992 12th of february 1992 they were nominated for album of the year alongside seal by seal beverly craven by beverly craven <laughs> uh, blue lines by massive attack and stars by simply red yeah um a mixed bag i think it's fair to say a mixed bag. Mm. They were also nominated for British Single of the Year alongside These Are Days of Our Lives by Queen. The Stonk by Halen Pace. Are you aware of The Stonk? <laughs> um, no. <laughs> it's the comic I... relief song and it is fucking rubbish. I, I know of Halen Pace as uh, something of a punchline. I don't know The Stonk though. It's mad that Half the people nominated for Best Single of the Year aren't actually musicians. Jason Donovan, Any Dream Will Do from the Joseph and the Technicolor. So you've got an actor. Come on. I mean, harsh. Jason Donovan did have a solo career, yeah. Uh, Vic Reeves and the Wonder Stuff, Dizzy. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 3M Eternal by the KLF. And the other other nominee was Bring Your Daughter to the Slaughter by Iron Maiden. Yeah, their first number one, wasn't it? Yeah. First and only, oh, fucking... I think, actually. Their only British number one single. But yeah. Yeah. Fucking mental. Uh, Just another time for... that the Academy gets it wrong about Maiden. <laughs> the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame <laughs> and the Brits. Yeah. Um, 
British Video of the Year, they were nominated for as well. It was mm. won by Killer by Sil. Uh, Funny How by Airhead was nominated. Sexuality by Billy Bragg. Love to Hate You by Erasure. That's a good song, mm. by the way. Um, Last Train to Transcendental by the KLF. Change by Lisa Stansfield, my favourite. Cold Code Heart by Midyear. Goodbye Cruel World by Shakespeare's Sister. Stars by Simply Red. And Size of a Cow by Wonder Stuff. I tell you what, I love... I, the Size of a Cow by The Wonder Stuff is a fucking great song. It's well good. I'll like, take legit. your word for it. Yeah. They didn't win any of those awards, um, but they were also nominated for Best British Group. Yeah. Now, Alongside, yeah, go on. Ju- Just before you get into uh, what happened with that, can I just ask, Best British Group, I, I looked, I had a look on the Wikipedia page for what that award is, and it's a really vague award that they give out. It's just like, it's something like outstanding excellence in being a British group. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. what, what is it actually for? It's just like, we've got, we just want to do another award, basically. Well, best British, same as best British solo artist, I suppose. Just the best well, that, British that group. Makes more say, that makes more sense to me. It's like best British solo artist in terms of the stuff they have released, but best British group, it's just like, what, what do... The justifications I've seen behind it just don't really ring true. And it, I think especially when you see who won it this year, it's like, well, where's that come from? Like, how are these two things equal? Yeah. So the nominees were Dire Straits. Okay. Who, I don't know if they've been got, that year, but no long problem, but... since past their best Dire Straits. James, uh, fair enough. Pet Shop Boys, fair Wee. enough. Queen, Simply Red, and the KLF. Mm. So... Um, the KLF, yeah, are nominated for four Brits. Uh, they're nominated for a lot of Brits. That's a lot of Brits to mm. be nominated for, right? Them, them and Seal, the two most nominated acts that year. I know, right? That is pretty fucking, pretty fucking mental that this weird pair of guys who did the Doctor Who song <laughs> and, and then started playing a load of free parties and putting together some, you know, early rave house music were nominated alongside people as big as fucking dire straits who are mm. massive and queen and simply red so um the brits came calling and asked the klf to play live mm. in fact to open the ceremony um initially uh they were they approached motorhead i don't know if you knew this the klf decided that they wanted to do something different and approach motorhead i didn't know to do a song with it yeah Yeah. they wanted to do um 3am 3am eternal with lemmy on vocals that would have been fucking brilliant that would have been brilliant yeah it would have been brilliant um because bill drummond around this time again like as somebody who is so we like about bill drummond about him being weird or whatever but he clearly listens to a lot of different music Mm. he's a man after after our own heart uh (laughs) and um and yeah he basically heard extreme noise terror on john peel i believe Mm, and that would make sense um yeah and he wanted to do i mean the plan initially was that they were going to do an ep together of Mm. of new material um extreme noise terror and the klf together which i am so fucking gutted that that never came out because spoiler uh this is the last time the klf ever do anything or release anything or perform live as the klf ever again we never get anything else after this so that's the end of that um i would have fucking loved to have heard 
a KLF Extreme Noise Terror mashup mm. split EP or whatever it was that they were going to do. That would have been fucking great. It would have been. Uh, it would have been absolutely bizarre. I would hope that it'd be more of a mashup than a split. Um, kind of <laughs> like a like a better version yeah. of Full of Hell and Primitive Man. Yeah, that was sort of what they were going to go for. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah. that was that what they were going to do. Yeah. Um, the um, the the idea of kind of that got shelved pretty quickly because they were going to they wanted to do um, something incredibly shocking uh, <laughs> uh, to kind of basically facilitate their departure from the music industry so mm. at this point jimmy courty and bill drummond have decided that they have succeeded in doing whatever it is that they're going to do they've been invited to the brits after this massive success which was kind of you know by accident and they were thinking we'll get this grindcore band on stage with us and we'll do this song and then we're going to say we're leaving the music industry, but we're going to do something so shocking, so abhorrent that they'll never be able to, you know, they'll, 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 they'll never be able to kind of let us back into the music industry ever again. Mm -hmm. We're basically going to make our exit in the most uh, a terrible way. Um, these days, it would be putting your fingers up in the air as you walked off stage if you were royal blood <laughs> or saying, why don't you clap us better? Yeah. Um, but you all look but, bored, don't you? Yeah, you look bored. Oh, my God. Oh, help me. Help oh, me. Call the police. It's a hate, it's a hate crime. Um, <laughs> but the KLF, I mean, if that you find that shocking, probably take a seat now. Um, Bill Drummond uh, heard a story about, I, I think it was, it was something back in like hundreds and hundreds of years ago where uh if you could claim land as a kind of as a king or as a, a, a lord or a landowner mm. you could claim land by being the first person to actually place your hand on this land and so he heard this story of a, a scottish um dignitary or some i don't actually know the exact details of this story i'm going on the fly a little bit but this guy apparently there was a, a boat race to kind of claim this bit of land back in the sort of Hadrian's Wall era mm. um, in the sands the of time. The feudal system, and, yes. Yeah, and this guy cut his hand off, saw that he wasn't <laughs> going to get there first, so cut his hand off, threw his hand onto the land, and when his hand landed on the land, it meant he had claimed that land. And Bill Drummond loved that so much that he thought, I'm going to cut my hand off and I'm going to throw it in the audience and that will be me claiming the music industry. Um, and there was, yeah, yeah. there was genuine, as far as I'm aware, genuine conversations as to whether or not Bill Drummond would chop his own hand off live on stage, on television, to open the Brits. That is fucked up, right? Yeah. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um it's a, a little bit much you might say a little much i would i would argue i mean it ma it'd make a point it would it would definitely make a point i think that um, broadcast would have been cut very quickly as well it would have done yeah <laughs> i mean it, it, so that was the first idea and they decided not to do that um and then they uh they there was chat about killing a, an actual sack so making you know themselves a sacrificial lamb mm. they were going to kill a, a sheep live on stage mm. 
They're going to get a live sheep and slit its throat live on stage. Um, Extreme Noise Terror actually said, no, we're not going to be part of that because they're all vegans. Yes. In the time-honoured tradition of uh, cross punks and really horrible-sounding bands being really, really decent people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Bill Drummond actually said to the NME, the idea was that two-thirds way through the song, this altar would appear with the sheep on. We brought the meat, the cleavers, the knives, the tablecloth, got everything. But of course, in the end, Extreme Noise Terror made it blatantly known that they were totally against the idea. Um, by all accounts, they turned up... Um, in a van before the performance to KLF with buckets full of pig's blood mm. in it and um, Extreme Noise Terror were like we we don't want that we, we don't want to have mm. anything to do with that and basically we're like look we're, we're not going to be part of this if you do that so they decided that they wanted to keep Extreme Noise Terror on side and um, basically just kept the, the sheep's blood and the 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 dead sheep which we'll get to in a little bit uh, for later on in the evening as you um, do as you do as you do. So the performance of 3AM Eternal by the KLF and Extreme Noise Terror at the Brits in 1992. Sam, you've seen it. Yep. Talk me through it. What happens? Well, um, it, I mean, <laughs> ba- basically yeah. they start playing and it's incredibly noisy and chaotic and it all looks like everything's going to shit and everything exploding around them. Uh, Bill mm. Drummond is sort of leaning on uh, kind of almost comedy, kind of old school crutch kind of thing. Uh, like you see in, I don't know, um, Laurel and Hardy cartoon, like, or cartoon, uh, skit even, sorry. Um, and it just kind of looks like everything's a bit mental. And I can imagine people would be absolutely bewildered. I mean, I've only seen this on quite badly compressed footage that's been uploaded to YouTube way after the fact. Um, and then it climaxes with some pyro going off while Bill Drummond fires um, an automatic weapon over the audience's heads. Yeah, yeah, that is exactly what happens. So um, uh, it's just absolutely fucking mad. And this absolute, absolutely this, mad. Yeah, this performance was the first time I'd ever heard of the KLF as well. So my little extreme noise terror fact is that when I lived in Rotterdam, um, the first weekend that I was there, there was uh, Extreme Noise Terror were playing. And so they were the first band I saw in my new life back then. And the person I went with said, oh, uh, yeah, they, they, they were at the Brit Awards. And I found that mental enough. And then he said, oh, yeah, they played with the KLF and they like shot at the crowd. And I was like, you what? And the rest is history. <laughs> um, still no less mental all these years later. No, it's, it's not at all. So Tony Dickens, who was Extreme Noise Terror's drummer, said, uh, it didn't tell me about the pyrotechnics behind me and I nearly caught fire. And mm. the pyrotechnics are fucking... Ma- this is like ramstein pyrotechnics that we're talking about here. But they in the Hammersmith Apollo, fire. yeah. Yeah, in the Hammersmith Apollo. And then, yeah, as you say, as the feedback and pyro all just fill the stage, Drummond gets his machine gun um, and <laughs> he just says... <laughs> fuck you and start shooting blanks mm. from this machine gun you can see the like the muzzle flare on it though and everything I mean I, you would be fucking terrified to be in the audience yeah you'd think was, you were was, about to get murdered yeah it, it would be absolutely fucking terrifying um, at the end of the uh, the performance um, their publicist says uh, over the tannoy the KLF have now left the music business and the KLF 
are left to um the audience are left to sort of pick up the pieces and mm. the brit awards continues with performances <laughs> from the like <laughs> i mean the other performances i have listened to all of these songs after the fact because um I, I knew it would be a bit of a divergence you know kind of a little bit of a fly in the ointment for the the night but i didn't realize quite how far away they were from what was happening in mainstream british music in 1992 you you you're a fan of promise me by beverly craven <laughs> never me. never you even heard of her before me. today but, uh... to be yeah promise me by beverly craven then more than words by extreme like yeah extreme I, were there. I knew that one uh yeah whatever like meh uh, Lisa Stansfield did All Woman I don't actually know that song it's not um, very good Steve I know you love Lisa Stansfield <laughs> dearly but I listened to it earlier it's not very good it's quite a mawkish ballad in the vein yeah. of um, well Beverly Craven and one of the other performers uh, yes yeah, um, PM one. Dawn Set Adrift on Memory Bliss do you like that song? I didn't mind it actually because it's true by Spandau Ballet with some it is, quite yeah, bad it's good. hip hop over the top Quite yeah, like it's that. good. Crazy by Sills, good. Like that is that is a good that. song. That's a genuinely good song. And I'm yeah. never gonna survive unless we get crazy. And then um, we got Stars by Simply Red. Now I know yeah. someone I used to go to school with who fell down the stairs, <laughs> and we used to sing to him. And I want to fall down the stairs. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Kids I, I can like be it. So cruel. I like it. That's <laughs> what <laughs> Fell down the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I watched the video for it earlier. <laughs> he did. He fell on the stairs. But yeah, I mean, Simply Red Stars. Uh, that that was what the KLF and Extreme Noise Terror were kind of coexisting with. It's yeah. absolutely fucking mad to think that... I mean, that performance would look mad today at download. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It would yeah. be like, bloody hell... If you saw that at download, you'd go, fuck me, what the fuck was that? Yeah. At the Brit Awards, opening the Brit Awards in 1992, it has got to be, it has got to be the most extreme live performance at an award show ever. It has to be. Oh, I mean, I don't know. Ollie, Ollie Sykes did get on that table. Oh yeah, yeah, did didn't he? Got mm. on the table, didn't he? Oh, Bloody love that. And I, I mean, it has to be. I, I'm. There are a few. There are a few like great performances at award shows. There are a few great performances on TV shows that we were getting. I mean, and some that we would do things about this about like things mm. that happen at gigs as well. But in terms of just absolutely fucking something up so bad, like just destroying the the entire aesthetic of a show nothing comes close to this does it no nothing they are so far removed from what should be happening at that brit awards um it it's um it's pretty unbelievable i mean i suppose to, to be fair to the brits they were booking the klf you know the kind of electronic pop band and they were the ones that decided to bring along grindcore kind of well <laughs> semi-pioneers extreme yeah. noise blood tower, so, dead yeah. pigs and cutting their hand off yeah yeah, yeah, yeah fucking yeah, yeah but yeah they they didn't know but i mean i think that's the thing so one of the reasons why the klf kind of end after this is so to give you a bit of a spoiler klf do win best british group but they have to share it with simply red and i think that's one of the things where they go yeah we were doing the right thing here yeah. because 
they've gone when the music industry is kind of okay with you they've gone yes you are the you are the best thing that you can possibly be you're as good as simply red yes you are (laughs) strange bedfellows but bedfellows all the same yeah and uh and so they uh they got a courier to pick up they they fucked off straight after the after their performance got a bike courier to accept the award for them and then um you know they uh famously dropped a dead sheep on the covered in blood with a with a message on it saying we died for you spell e w e like the mm-hmm. sheep uh, dropped it on the the doors of the after party um apparently it was going to be a bit more than that as well it was going to be a lot of other extra shit but they kind of had to do it on the fly there's a lot of stuff with the klf when you look into it it all looks like this kind of very measured attack on the music industry Mm. but when you read up about it and you find out more about it a lot of it is like shit that they did on the fly like oh fuck we're gonna cut our hand off oh we can't let's get a let's get a a sheep oh they won't let us kill a sheep or we'll find a dead sheep's car we'll throw it at the somewhere. door yeah. i will just fucking throw it at the door <laughs> <laughs> master sort of manipulators paint- yeah painted <laughs> as these like master manipulators but actually like they're not they, they kind of they kind of are but they're also like brilliantly kind of ramshackle and punk rock mm. i fucking love that shit uh i think it's really really cool really really cool i mean they did split up you know straight after that and we will talk about um what happened after this uh in the next part but Mm. i genuinely i would love to see i mean again we're recording this in the aftermath of royal blood going why don't you clap us and seeing the internet lose its fucking mind about they're so rude they're so horrible yeah you know they're lame they're dickheads they're poshos they're whatever they're a shit band whatever you want to say of it but like who fucking cares do you know what i mean like that wouldn't it's like a complete and utter non-event whereas this it's just so fucking bizarre the mm. whole thing is so bizarre i feel a bit sad to think that i don't ever imagine i can't imagine any band could get to the point where they would get asked to play the brits and would have the fucking balls to do something like this. Yeah, I, I can't see it ever happening again. And that is quite a depressing thought, really. Uh, and I think the fact that the KLF, like you say, it's not this kind of grand plan that they've done, but kind of a load of accidents that kind of fall together as they're flying by the seat of their pants on this anarchic crusade um, to, yeah, take the piss out of everyone else and show everyone else up. I think it's brilliant. And... Um, I mean, I do wonder how much something like this happening means that maybe there's been, I don't know, the music industry has thought of better ways to protect itself from that kind of thing happening again. Because surely you'd think after the fact there'd be imitators, there'd be other bands who would get invited to play these award shows who are maybe a little bit outside of the the mainstream, who would try and do a similar, a a KLF style stunt. But yeah, it's not going to happen again, is it? It's not. And I think as well, you know, you've got to think 1992 and kind of this is early 1992. So, you know, as mm, I said, February, this is like yeah. February 1992. So this is prior to, I guess, and we didn't really have it as much as they did in America, I don't think. But still, that you know, like when they talk about the 90s and how, you know, how the kind of 
the lunatics took over the asylum how alternative music and the things that had always been kind of marginalized and had been on the sidelines and all the kind of the big characters that became huge huge superstars and that didn't used to happen before those kind of weird underground artists that mm. you know like like seeing Slipknot on TF, TFI Friday seeing Nirvana you know on MTV all the time seeing Jarvis Cocker at the Brits and all of those things they talk about that a lot and whilst that is undoubtedly true undoubtedly you know there were weird little one-hit wonder bands cropping up here there and everywhere in the 90s there were punk bands and you know sort of punk indie metal rock bands who were doing shit you know or the prodigy do you know what they were doing shit that, that genuinely shocked people in a way that i don't really think happens as much these days but even so you know this sort of happened before any of that mm. this was like the first this is the first shot across the bows of <laughs> any kind of and i still think it remains the sort of the benchmark for like how fucking nuts can you be how fucking nuts can how how fucking far can you take something well that's as far as you can take it i don't think anyone else has ever got in a scenario where they can go we're going to open the brits and we're going to we are going to we're going to shoot at the audience like are you fucking kidding me it's so weird that that ever happened yeah i mean i look forward to a uh, royal bloods performance at the brit awards where they presumably wear a kind of fake bomb vest or something like that 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 then i would actually go fair play lads fair play well you know it's like i've probably already heard me say because we haven't recorded this week's episode but i would probably say like, if you are going to try and piss your audience off do it really properly just really <laughs> either if you if, if you just want to piss your audience off then that's fine but but you need to really really piss them off and um and nobody has ever pissed their audience off more than the klf did on that night i think it is uh still the bar for everyone to hit mm. and it's not even really although it is the end of them as a band it's actually weirdly not the end of them as a, a, a duo doing things that will make you go, eh? Because mm. there's just, more to come. It's just the start. It is kind of mm. just the start. It's the end and the start of something equally as bizarre, which we will talk to you about over on our Patreon page. So you can go over to patreon.com forward slash truecoppop and sign up and we'll tell you about what happened after that with all the money that they made from... <laughs> for the reason that they got on the brits and how that is maybe maybe something which annoyed people even more mm, quite possibly <laughs> yes. quite possibly all right we'll see you over there thanks very much for listening <laughs>